Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on the show today, City Journal's Seth Barron joins Manhattan Institute fellow Ralph Manguel to talk about the disturbing leftward shift among urban prosecutors across the country. Over the last five years or so, cities from New York to Philadelphia to Chicago have elected a new generation of prosecutors, prosecutors that are dedicated to reducing punishment for crime, increasing oversight on police, and dismantling mass incarceration, among other policy goals generally ranged under the social justice cause. If you want a recent example of the widening rift between big city police departments and local prosecutors, Earlier this week, Chicago's newly elected state's attorney announced her office would drop all charges against Jussie Smollett, the actor accused of staging his own hate crime assault, which led to a weeks-long investigation by police in addition to a media frenzy. After the announcement, Mayor Rahm Emanuel stood with police superintendent Eddie Johnson and denounced the decision. But regardless of that particular case, the consequences for our nation's cities of this shift among prosecutors could mean a lot of trouble ahead. That's it for me. The conversation with Seth and Ralph begins after this. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to 10 Blocks, the official podcast of City Journal. This is your host for today, Seth Barron, associate editor at City Journal. Rafael Mangual is deputy director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute and a fellow. His latest piece for City Journal is called Justice for Whom? Left-leaning urban prosecutors are working to undo the success of the crime-fighting revolution. Thanks for joining us, Ralph. Oh, my pleasure, Seth. Thanks for having me. So what was the crime-fighting revolution? Well, the crime-fighting revolution is what New York City saw happen throughout the 90s into the early 2000s. I mean, you know, I think people uh, forget just how bad things were um, in early 1990s New York. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere without being confronted um, with just rampant crime and disorder. Subways were covered in graffiti. Murders were up in the 2000s per year. Um, there were more than 100,000 robberies in the city. I mean, it was just absolute mayhem. And, you know, within just a decade, things completely turned around. Um, and I think this was largely due to a combination of things, um, most notably probably the adoption of a broken windows approach um, within the New York City Police Department. But that was also coupled with, you know, really sort of much harsher incarceration practices than what are considered uh, – popular or, you know, uh, palatable today. Okay. So what are urban prosecutors doing now that could unwind these successes? Well, it's interesting. Urban prosecutors now are talking like defense attorneys. Um, There's been this really rapid shift um, among big city prosecutors really in the last few years. And I think what it traces back to is Robert McCullough's um, apparent failure to uh, indict Darren Wilson, who shot and killed Michael Brown. Uh, in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. Um, You know, this obviously uh, caused a serious uproar. And, you know, when, when, when no indictment was brought against Darren Wilson, who, by the way, was subsequently cleared by a federal investigation. um, But that didn't matter. And what you saw was this really just kind of a transition in terms of um, 
you know, uh, the political attention paid to prosecutor races. And within a couple of years, you had really sort of progressive left-wing folks who were, you know, campaigning on ending mass incarceration and lowering sentences and essentially going softer on crime. And so what you've seen now is, for example, in in, in Boston, you've got Rachel Rollins. Um, she campaigned on ending prosecutions for a series of minor offenses. I think she put out a list of 22 offenses that she will no longer prosecute. In Manhattan, you got Cy Vance, who says he's going to stop prosecuting marijuana possession, fare evasion. Uh, Chicago's Kim Fox went, uh, you know, kind of all in on so-called restorative justice. And Philly, Larry Krasner, he wants to even lower sentences for violent crimes, um, which, you know, he, he at least is honest enough to acknowledge is what really drives the incarceration numbers in this country. So it's just really um, both interesting and a little scary to see how quickly there's been a shift among urban prosecutors across the country in big cities. Well, reformers in New York City say that the jails are crowded with people who are being held on minor charges. So is the problem with the laws or how they're being enforced? Oh, it's certainly with how they're being enforced or not enforced in this case. Um, you know, it, it, it's really, it, it, it's interesting because there's only so much that police can do. And in a city like New York, they seem to be doing a pretty good job of identifying the folks who, you know, who pose a risk, um, you know, and, 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 and there was a kind of uh, synergy with prosecutors in deciding who was going to you know, get the most attention um, in, in the form of time served. And you know, for the most part, you know, only about 10% of the people that, that the NYPD arrests end up serving any time in jail and only about 2% um, go to prison. But um, in the past couple of years, what we've seen is just a, a sort of broader scale attempt to frustrate the efforts of the NYPD. Um, by going even softer on, on the criminals that they're bringing before the justice system. Well, so Rikers Island is the primary jail for New York City. Who's there? Like, who are the people in Rikers? Are they kids who got arrested because they were smoking weed? Are they people who are drinking on their stoop? Absolutely not. Um, this is one of the biggest misconceptions about the criminal justice reform debate, especially in cities like New York. There's this idea out there that the people who are, uh, you know, crowding our jails and prisons are these, you know, unfortunate, just really unlucky low-level offenders who never did anything else wrong and just happened to get caught that one time doing something silly or stupid like smoking pot or drinking in public or hopping a turnstile. And that's just, that's just not the case. Um, you know, we, we've actually got some data on who's in Rikers Island, right? For example, 91% of the pretrial population uh, in that jail is held on a felony charge, 49% of them on violent felony charges. Over half of the jail population is facing most uh, more than one case, and most of the jail population, I think the average, um, no, the average percentage of the jail population who has been there before is 75% historically. Um, these are not people who just need a second chance. These are people who have had second, third, fourth, fifth chances um, and have proven themselves to be chronic offenders or serious violent criminals. That's who's in Rikers Island. And, you know, to, to, to mislead the 
public and and create the impression that the people behind bars in this city are you know these just kind of unlucky kids who who got caught with a little bit of pot is just um, it's really unconscionable, um, especially because we already do such a really good job of sort of focusing those carceral resources on really what amounts to the worst of the city's worst. I mean, like I said again, only two percent of NYPD arrests result in a prison admission, and only about ten percent result in a jail admission here in New York City. That's that's pretty good for a city of nine million people, and you know over again over twenty years. Uh, the Rikers population has been essentially cut in half, um, and uh, you know it, it just it just doesn't make sense um, the way they they're arguing their case. But with with crime low historically in New York City, um, why are there so many people in jail? Well, I wouldn't. I, I would kind of push back against the idea that there are so many people in jail. I mean, the the New York City jail population is only about eight thousand people. Um, this is a city with almost nine million people. Um, you know, so so I don't think there that that number reflects a a, a particularly large or troubling um, number of of, in, of incarcerated uh, of incarcerated folks. And I think it it actually does quite well in terms of reflecting the lower crime rates compared to the 1990s when the Rikers population was probably double what it is today. But when we talk about the people in jail, there's a tendency to dehumanize them. But these are people are innocent, right? I mean, that's the way our system works. You're, they're in jail because they're guilty. They're they're not guilty. Well, that's, they're awaiting trial. That's certainly true for a portion of the Rikers population who's awaiting trial. Um, but what you have to realize is that there's a significant portion of the Rikers population who's actually already been sentenced and are serving a a term of of, of not imprisonment but incarceration in jail. So you know if you are convicted of a felony offense and are only are getting less than a year um, in in terms of time that you have to serve, or you or, or if you're convicted of a misdemeanor um, for which the the term of incarceration is less than a year, you're actually going to be spending some time uh, spending that time in Rikers Island and not upstate in a New York State prison. So I think first you have to kind of disaggregate the part of the Rikers population that's there. Um, serving sentences uh, for for crimes that have been adjudicated. There's another portion of the Rikers population that are actually prisoners who are transitioning out of their sentences um, from upstate prisons or are being held in Rikers while they are going to court, um, that sort of thing. So, you know, there really is only a small portion um, of the of the Rikers population, not a small portion, but the, the, the portion of the Rikers population who's being held pre-trial is not as is not the entirety of the population, um, and is not as big I, I think as people think it is. There's a movement now to eliminate cash bail. Um, so for the people who are awaiting trial, they haven't been convicted. They're not waiting to go upstate. They're not serving out their sentence. That's still thousands of people. Um, and they're basically just at Rikers because they're too poor to pay their bail. So why is it that people who are rich don't ha- don't have to sit in jail, and people who are poor do have to sit in jail? Isn't that unfair? Yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, it's certainly uh, you can make the argument that it's that it's not fair. And um, you know, in a state like uh, in a city like New York, where judges can't actually consider. Um, the public safety risk posed by a, a defendant, I actually think that's a reform 
worthwhile, which is I think judges should be allowed to consider this because I do think it should be, you know, in pretrial incarceration should be based on more than someone's ability to pay. Um, but no, I just don't think uh, that the data support that there is a large number of people in um, pretrial detainment who just can't afford um, their bail. I mean, the, the pretrial uh, population's average stay is, is not all that long. They usually you know, plead down and are out in a, in a few days. Um, that's not really what's driving um, what's driving the population there, um, which I think, again, we've already done a pretty good job of cutting down on to the extent that that's a goal we should be pursuing. Um, I certainly don't think that's a goal we should be pursuing for its own sake, but that's another argument. Now, Kings County District Attorney Eric Gonzalez came out with a big report recently, which you've uh, read and written about. What can you tell us about his report and what he suggests? Well, you know, what I can tell you is that the report is just based on, um, you know, some really fallacious thinking, I think, um, and and some misguided assumptions about about what incarceration looks like. Um, you know, one of the things that really jumped out at me is this idea that New York City is contributing to mass incarceration, which, you know, again, just to reiterate, I mean, just is not supported by the data when you've only got 2% of, of NYPD arrests resulting in an imprisonment. I think that's already an indication that we're focusing those carceral resources on, on the right on the right people. But, you know, another example of the, the kind of misguided assumption that underlies um, the report uh, is is his claim that that incarceration in New York City uh, destabilizes families and and has failed historically to make us safer? I mean, these things just you know either depend on really kind of interesting assumptions or just aren't true. Um, when it comes to the destabilization of families claim, for example, I mean one of the biggest assumptions that underlies that is that the people being incarcerated would otherwise be positive forces in their communities and in their households. And, um, you know, there, there's no supporting evidence uh, to suggest that in, in Gonzalez's report. And, you know, I think that's an important thing to ask about because, for example, one study that was published in the, uh, the journal uh, Childhood Development found that when you have a parent in the household who engages in high levels of antisocial behavior, which I think you can safely categorize a decent number of the people in Rikers Island, for example, as falling into that psychologically antisocial category, that the impact on their families is actually significantly worse than, for example, the absence of a pro-social father, which seems to be the assumption underlying Gonzalez's claim, which is that, you know, it would hold true if and really only if um, a significant portion of the number of people uh, incarcerated in New York City are psychologically pro-social. Um, but I, I don't think – I think that's a that's a hard leap to make. Um, and as for whether incarceration has made us safer historically, I mean, you know, the Sentencing Project, for example, which is, is no fan of mass incarceration, a big critic of the use of incarceration – um, and and you know their their scholars have have long advocated for lowering the incarcerated population in cities across the the country. They in a 2005 report they admitted that incarceration was responsible for about 25 percent of the crime decline throughout the the 1990s. Um, you know so this idea that it didn't make us safer that there's no benefit to incarceration. Um, just just doesn't hold true. I mean it, what I think is really behind it is just this sort of strategic decision to ignore the incapacitation benefits of, of incarceration. You know, the reality is, is that when someone's behind bars, they can't hurt anyone. 
Um, and you know, we ignore the consequences in this debate of, of what it will mean to start letting these people out. And, and you know, New York City's actually had some interesting recent examples of this, right? Um, there was a Edgar Garcia case in, in, in the Bronx. This was a 16-year-old kid who, uh, you know, who, who shot at some rival gang members on a crowded street in broad daylight in the Bronx. Bullets whizzing past a you know a little girl's head. You know, the girl wasn't much bigger than the backpack she was carrying. I mean, it was just really um, crazy. And and that kid's out on bail right now. I mean, he's he's free, and his case is actually may even get transferred into family court, and he may be tried as a juvenile. I mean, you know, when you have things like that happening, that that reality is just in tension with the claim that New York is this sort of mass incarceration state. Um, there was the subway shooting on the 7 train. On the, it was a Super Bowl Sunday. Um, the perp who they arrested for that, it turns out, was was actually uh, out on bail um, for a significant uh, indictment uh, just, a, just a couple months earlier. Um, there was another case of uh, this kid named Frank Valencia, who was 17, turning 18, uh, was caught with a, with a handgun, 300 rounds of ammunition, a machete, brass knuckles, the whole deal was arrested, given youthful offender status and probation, uh, and then a week after his release, he shot a female police officer in the face at point-blank range. Thankfully, the officer survived, and he was then eventually convicted um, as an adult because he was 18 after that week had passed. But this idea that there's no downside to decarceration um, really makes me nervous, and I think it should make everyone else nervous too. Well, New York City under Mayor de Blasio in the last five years has stepped, walked back a lot of its um, previous strategies on, on fighting crime. And you could argue that broken windows policing and proactive policing in this, in the way that were pioneered before de Blasio are kind of over. But crime hasn't gone up. So doesn't that indicate that broken windows policing and all of those intensive strategies, they didn't work? They were, it's a myth. No, no, I don't think that's the right conclusion to draw from this. And I, although I think that's exactly what um, people like Eric Gonzalez would would have you believe, um, but the reality is is that we are still experiencing the benefits of the policing revolution that took place um, in New York. Um, we're also still experiencing the benefits of the harsher incarceration practices for serious violent offenders that New York still practices. Um, you know, over the course of of, of time where New York lowered its prison population, New York State, it also started increasing the amount of time served for violent offenders. And so there are sort of lag benefits to those longer term incarcerations where people are not coming back into the community. Um, also, New York City has just changed quite a lot since the 1990s. So the dynamic on the streets, um, even in the outer boroughs, is much different than it was in the early 90s. Our population's much uh, bigger, it's much denser. Things like um, like drive-by shootings are much less common. And a big reason for that is because the broken windows policing revolution really pushed the the, the outdoor drug market indoors and underground, which one took targets off the street and helped drive, you know, the, the, the decline of shootings and, and murders, but also made public spaces more attractive to development um, and investment that we now see. And so, you know, it, it's much harder to take public spaces over once they've been sort of occupied and developed by the law-abiding portion of the public. Um, you know, unfortunately, however, we do are, we are seeing some kind of troubling indicators that the walk back from this may start going a little too far. 
Um, the NYPD, for example, recently announced an initiative uh, to, to sort of pay closer attention to six precincts throughout the city. I happen to live in one of those precincts, um, and I can say in my personal experience, the sort of sense of public disorder has, has gotten grimmer. Um, in the past few years. And, uh, you know, I think we walk away from those practices that help sort of dig us out of the hole that we were in in the 90s at our peril. Hmm. Well, one final question. Um, Black and brown people are 90% of the jail population in New York City. And that's a really striking number. So doesn't that prove that racism is baked into the system? No, no, it doesn't. And, um, you know, the reason it doesn't is because all you have to really do to, to understand that is just control for crime and who commits crime in New York City. And the unfortunate reality is, is that a significant portion of the most serious crimes that it, that for which people are incarcerated in New York City are committed by black and brown men mostly. Um, you know, this is, this is uh, it's a sad reality and, you know, I don't pretend to have all the answers in terms of uh, what to do about it and what to, how to change that. Um, but police have to respond to crime and where the crime is, and that's where the resources for law enforcement should go. And, you know, so long as, as black and brown men are contributing to a significant uh, proportion of the serious and violent crime in places like New York City and all over the country, unfortunately, um, that reality is, is going to hold for a while. Wow, those are some challenging uh, perspectives you've offered us, Ralph. Um, well, don't forget to check out Rafael Mangual's work at cityjournal.org. That's city hyphenjournal.org. We would love to hear your comments about today's episode on Twitter, at City Journal, hashtag 10blocks. Lastly, if you like our show and want to hear more of it, please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. This is your host, Seth Barron. Ralph, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Seth. Pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.